so Hugh, uh, when you were a teenager in England and this story about Jeremy Thorpe trying to conspire to murder his lover was, you know, unfolding on television news, did you ever think to yourself, you know, let's make a pretty interesting movie? <laughs> Uh, no, but I was enjoying it. We, the whole nation was loving it. It was fabulous um, comedy drama unfolding in front of us. And, uh, you know, it had this brilliant sort of Monty Python aspect to it because it was really about the absurdity of the British establishment. Mm -hmm. in, a way, in many ways, it was the last hurrah of the, the British establishment where... Um, men, almost exclusively men, from a certain background around the country and if they got into trouble they sort of backed each other up and hushed up their scandals and things like that. Well, I mean, the show does take on this darkly comedic tone that is befitting of that absurdity. Was that something that was um, difficult to capture correctly, you know? Because, I mean, it's not quite farcical, but it's also, you know, I mean, there's, there's some funny bits in there. Yeah, well, it was very much the intention because the the book uh, by John Preston took that tone, absolutely accurate, but with an eye for um, the absurd elements of it, and uh, and then uh, Russell Davis, you know, who's a brilliant screenwriter, preserved that in the in the script, and then I and we did, uh, yes, managed to I think preserve it again in the actual acting and. Um, production but it is delicate I remember the music being particularly delicate there was a lot of debate about oh is this too jaunty and funny this music but I think in the end it's brilliant um, tell us a little bit about who Jeremy Thorpe was and what your I guess interpretation of the character as it is was well the, the, Jeremy Thorpe was um, a British politician leader of one of the three big parties in Britain uh, and a bit of a star. He was considered um, flamboyant, witty, uh, unusual, and uh, kind of revived this third party, which had always languished behind the other two. Uh, and he seemed to be a member of the establishment. He'd been to the best school in Britain, Eton. He'd been you know, very expensive. He'd been to Oxford. Uh, he seemed to have it all, and yet... Um, because of the social mores, restrictions of the day, he couldn't admit that his true sexuality was he was gay. And he had all these lovers, and one in particular um, stalked him for decades. And it seems that in the end, um, this chap, Jeremy Thorpe, decided to try and kill his ex-lover. It was the only way to preserve his career and his family, and because he got married and he had a kid, and so he took out this bungling, hopeless, upper-class English version of a hit on his ex-gay lover. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the true story. And uh, and yes, my, what was my interpretation of him? Well, uh, you come from both ends. There was the exterior, you know, there he is on YouTube. Still, there's lots of footage. That's very helpful, interesting to see the way he moved and spoke and did his hair and all that but then in terms of his inner life for me it was about um, pain really it was about the pain of, of two things being um, 
unable to express his sexuality openly. Ever, even when the story finishes after two decades in a massive trial, he still can't admit to his lawyer that he's ever been gay, even though it's patently clear that he was. And um, also, I think, the pain of being a narcissist, because he certainly was that too, uh, like so many politicians. That scene with the lawyer has actually really stuck out to me, because it was that, uh, in that moment, he's also, he's asking him, uh, you know, why Norman, why do you seem to love this guy so much and he starts reflecting on you know some of the past experiences yeah. he's had with other men that have not gone very well and it really drives home uh the fact that you know this is a man in a time when um you know it was very dangerous it's still very dangerous in a lot of in a lot of respects yeah yeah he, he was well who knows whether it was choice or just um restrictions of his time and his class mm -hmm. but uh, his sex life was largely furtive fumbles and one-offs in pubs and public lavatories and things and that's yeah that's what he talks about in that big scene with his lawyer um, or it's the nearest he ever gets to talking about having been gay and how dangerous and um, unsatisfactory that kind of sex life is right um, you know, you mentioned the fact that he's a politician, and we were talking about this off-camera, just like you know, the use of contact lenses and how that made him appear more shark-like. Mm. And, I mean, uh, a lot of his decisions are about sort of self-preservation, you know, whether it's getting married to a woman who he doesn't really love, but it's all because of appearances and, you know, the whole plot to kill uh, Norman. Can you talk a bit about his sort of political machinations well, he was a pure political animal. I mean, you know, to use the shark metaphor again, he was like a great white. You know, the, the great white, they say, is this perfect killing machine. And he was a perfect political machine. Every single thing he did in life was geared to political advancement, advancement of his, his personal career and his party. And I've met, you know, having done a lot of politics in the last five years in Britain, I've, I've come up close with a lot of politicians. And the higher they rise, the more shark-like they are. It's terrifying. There is no... You, you look at these people and you think, well, where's the humanity? And you realise it's gone. It's gone. They're only... They're, they're machines now. They're just... How do I further my career or my, my party? Uh, every single calculation, every moment of the day. And I think Thorpe was very like that. It's a lot like how it is out here. You know, people sort of just leave behind whatever morals they brought with them to the capital and... Yeah, well, I think they may bring morals. I think Thorpe brought morals as an idealistic young man, and they gradually get um, worn off in uh, the sort of board game of, of politics, whether it's Westminster or Washington, and, um, you know, the deals you have to cut and the compromises you have to make, and you end up with these perfectly polished pebbles who are no really no longer human at all. I was really amused by the ways in which, um, you know, you and the writer and, and the director, Stephen Fierce, sort of like poke holes into the stuffiness of, you know, this kind of upper-class mentality of Britain. And, you know, the way that um, Norman's life and his experiences contrast with that. You know, can you talk a bit about that? Uh, well... Yes. Uh, you see, Stephen Frears, he's very attracted 
to, I, was, I would almost say the grotesque. It's, uh, or at least the weird shapes that human beings ended up being twisted into. Um, if you think about some of his best films, um, what's the Joe Orton one called, you know, about the playwrights? Um, oh, prick oh, up, prick uh, up prick beers, yeah. Yeah, that kind of tone, I think, is Stephen at his absolute best. And, um, and it is, it's pro prodding away at uh, privilege and um, entitlement. Yeah, and in contrast to that in this film, because that's the sort of story of Thorpe, you have the story of, of his lover, Norman Scott, who uh, was brave enough to be openly gay in a time when it was very rare to do that. And uh, uh, <laughs> his tragic life, because I mean, he was a sort of disaster area. He never got it together. Never really found a job or settled down, knew who he was particularly. Um, <laughs> and to this day, I mean, he's still alive, Norman, yeah. and um, he's very charming. A lot of the filmmakers went to see him before we started shooting and came back saying how charming he is, and I, I believe that he he is, but I think he's still got issues. <laughs> he's, yeah, he still wants his national insurance card, which he was bullying Thorpe for in 1965. My friends who I was watching it with at the time they found that to be a pretty amusing cap at the end when it says yeah. so he's still waiting on this but it's true <laughs> yeah. it's true 40 years later yeah yeah um Stephen Frears uh you've worked with him before and Florence Foster Jenkins what kind of a director is he working with actors well Frears is not at all what I expected when he uh, asked me to be in Florence Foster Jenkins I had assumed that he was very um art cinema uh, intense that there'd be deep complicated discussions about character and motivation and all those things which I'm not that's not my world it's not how I work normally mm -hmm. and so I was dreading that but I thought well you know when in Rome so I prepared 20 very intelligent questions about the script and the character I went to meet him for a cup of tea somewhere and uh, every single question I asked him he said I, I don't know no idea no idea. Don't ask me. I'm just the director. Don't ask me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, is this a joke? Is this a pose? And now that I know him well over two films, it's partly a joke. <laughs> but it's partly what I've noticed other very good directors do is, is they, they're not interested in talk. They're not interest, interested really in the words. They watch. They watch. They watch the monitor especially. And they're saying, come on, they're like, like blank slates, entertain me or move me or move the story forward. And so it's uh, much more instinctive. Um, but it's a little unnerving for actors who do want a lot of chat because you get zero. I mean, you may have interviewed him and uh, you get nothing. <laughs> he, he, he teaches at London Film School once a month. And I often ask him, what, what do you say? Because you, whenever he's been asked a question at a Q&A with me, he's always said, no idea. <laughs> he's always been one of my favorites too because like the range of films that he makes you know it's like this is different from Dangerous Liaisons which is different yes. from the Rifters but you know it's, it's I think his greatest strength is his taste in material yeah. great taste he very rarely picks a dud and he's very good also at like making material uh, entertaining yes you know I mean this is a lot of fun to watch but yes. at the same time having you know a bit of a there's a bit of a message in here about 
LGBTQ rights and about uh, the class system, but it's most of all a lot of fun. Well, that's right. He's an entertainer. Yeah. And the older I get, the more I realize uh, the people I admire most in my business are at heart, they're entertainers, or at least they never forget they're that and never despise it, and never disappear up their own arse trying to be arty. Right. Um, working with Ben Wishaw, um, I don't think you two have a ton of scenes together, you're apart most of the time, but um, you two uh, do have some really crucial moments together, especially in the first episode. Um, can you talk a bit about what that dynamic was like? Uh, well, it was my third outing with Ben right. because he was actually my wife in Cloud Atlas. Right, yeah, yeah. Only a man like you would have known that. <laughs> uh, when I play a horrible, grumpy old man, yeah. his, uh, he's my wife lying in bed next to me. Uh, then, of course, he's Paddington in Paddington 2 when I try and kill him. And then I try and kill him again in, uh, in uh, a very scandal. He needs and, to stay away from you, is what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I, as I've said in interviews before, I've been trying to either rape or kill Ben for four years now. So in, uh, in uh, this film, yeah, it's, we actually shot our love affair in a day because they're all done in little vignettes. Um, and it is an odd experience to be there at eight in the morning with Ben, who I know a bit, but not that well. Uh, and they say action and, you know, you just got to put your tongue down his throat. There it is. And do sex. So we did a lot of kissing on the bed and I thought, I had no one had shouted cut. No. So I thought, I don't know what to do now. So I thought, well, maybe I'll have a go at his nipples. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I did that. Yeah. But it is it's tricky. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, it's, it's amazing to think that was all done in a day. That, 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 that little sequence of the sort of... Yeah. Um, two-year romance we did in a day. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm. Um, I want to talk a bit about the uh, awards recognition this show has received so far. Um, uh, Golden Globe nomination, SAG, uh, BAFTA TV, Critics' Choice. Uh, you've been nominated all four. Uh, what does that uh, mean for you in terms of you know this, this role in, in this show? It's really nice. And to say anything else would be absurd. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, and it, um, it's it's just really gratifying. You know, these things are not easy, and um, you sweat bullets over them. At least I do. I prepared for thought for about a year. I think it got delayed, and so I was just more and more prep, and more and more worry, 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 worry. Uh, and, you know, Stephen Fraser would tell you, I, I drive everyone mad with my uh, anxieties. And uh, so to come out the other end and people to love it and be nice about it uh, almost makes it worthwhile. Well, you've won a Golden Globe before, back in the beginning of your uh, career out here for four weddings and a funeral. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and what that was like? Well, of course, in those days, I was suddenly propelled from almost total obscurity to the opposite uh, with, with this one film, Four Weddings, and I didn't really understand anything, especially on the American side of it all. Um, so when they said, oh, well, you've been nominated for a Golden Globe, I didn't know if that was good, bad, and different. really, it sounded pretty good, and um, showed up and then 
won it. That was very nice. But, you know, again, I, I had no knowledge of it all. I remember uh, coming off the stage in one of the big wigs from Gramercy who were distributing it saying, well, that's a lock on an Oscar yeah. uh, nomination. And I thought, what? What? And it wasn't anyway. He was completely wrong. Um, although the film got nominated, I think. Yeah. And maybe yeah, Richard did. He did, yeah. That was yeah. Right. yeah. So that was nice. Uh, but free, really, from then to now, no, that's not true. There's been a few other Golden Globe nominations in between. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were. There were. But, it, you know, we do slightly live in a world where you're either making films that people go and see or you're making films that get awards. Right. That's an unhappy division, I think. Right. Uh, well, before I let you go, uh, I do want to ask, you know, uh, between this and Paddington 2, uh, Florence Foster Jenkins, uh, Cloud Atlas, you mentioned, and a few other things, I mean, you've really been doing a lot of really interesting character work. Do you feel like you've uh, hit a creative stride in your career where you're, you know, uh, the parts, you know, are getting better, you're getting better at playing them. I mean, it really does feel like uh, there's some something sparking here in the last few years. Well, it's nice of you to say that. Uh, some of it, I think, is just that, I, as I've said before in interviews, I, I got old and ugly. And I, you know, <laughs> I, they can't put me in romantic comedies anymore. And, I'm, you know, I'm grateful to those films. I'm proud of them. I, I, it's nice that people watch them all the time. Uh, a lot of them I can look squarely in the face. Not all, most. Um, but there's no question since that stopped, um, the parts uh, have, you know, stretched me, as they say. But, and, uh, and I've enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, I sometimes I think, well, did I get better? And I, maybe I, I have. I've certainly got better because of having children, which is interesting. Suddenly, my, what was left of my desiccated English heart uh, sort of opened up again. And that's a very, very useful tool to have as an actor, uh, to be able to feel things. And, uh, but I think it was parts that might have been slightly holding me back before, because if I think about, about a boy or a, um, a very peculiar practice, no, it wasn't called that. What the fuck was it called? A film I did with uh, Mike Newell just after Four Weddings. Um, oh, uh, 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 an awfully big adventure. Yeah, yeah. Where I'm this uh, evil theatre director. You know, when I had character parts, I, I liked them and was quite good. It's, uh, it's leading man, it's difficult. Yeah. Well, you're sort of in that stage of your career that people like Paul Newman or Jack Lemmon were, where, you know, they started doing their best work. Is so, that right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you look at The Verdict and things like that. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Gary Glenn Ross, and, mm -hmm. you know, it's like something happens when you've got a lot of experience and it... Experience certainly helps a lot, yeah. a lot. Filmmaking, you know, film acting, because I, I, I sometimes watch, I'm making something at the moment, and you watch really good actors come in who haven't done much film work before. And uh, young ones, you know, and you just think, this is so hard for you without knowing all these tricks. It's taken decades to, or tricks and little emergency procedures <laughs> when it's going wrong to bring yourself back. Yeah. Well, that's a wonderful show. Thank and, you very uh, much. Performance. Thank you so much for your time. All right.